votes. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. You may have noticed that I have not been around a lot, and it's because I am doing so many things, but one of the things that I'm doing right now is really exciting. Along with my friend Chase Joint, I am working on a feature film which brings trans history to the screen. It's called Framing Agnes. And you can find out all about it at framingagnes.com or on Instagram at framing.agnes or on Twitter at framing underscore Agnes. I highly recommend you check it out. We're very, very excited about this and it should be out in the world sometime next year. So, um, definitely look out for that. Recently, while walking through the Tate Modern with a friend here in London, we came upon a room full of Nan Golden's photography. I've always been a fan of Golden's work, both her art and her recent drug user activist work through her group Pain, the Prescription Addiction Intervention Network. On the wall, hanging between two other notably iconic golden photos from the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, was one that always knocks the breath right out of me. Greer and Robert on the Bed, New York City, 1986. The portrait, distorted with the slightest motion blur, shows a delicate, ethereal woman laying across a bed with a man in black set at the edge. They are looking away from each other. It feels like a hot summer breakup. As I stood in front of the image with my friend, who is also trans, I wondered how many of the thousands of straight people who walk through this gallery would clock the woman in the picture, let alone realize just who she was. This image stays with me not only as a haunting photograph, but also because of its subject. In this month's episode, I'm finally ready to discuss one of my favorite artists, trans woman, muse, doll maker, and all-around 1980s icon, Greer Langton. Before Greer Langton became a downtown New York icon, before she was arguably the first openly transsexual fine artist to receive major recognition, before her image became the muse of Nan Golden, Peter Hujar, and other photographers, Greer was a dress-up loving, doll-playing, feminine child in Holly, Illinois. Born in April 1958 to a Presbyterian minister and his wife, Greer was the third child in the family. Greer would later refer to herself by way of her most intimately autobiographical doll as having been a sissy. Her childhood, perhaps unsurprisingly, was difficult. Ostracized and even occasionally attacked by the other kids, Greer retreated into the world of dolls. It was when I was about 10 years old, she told ID Magazine in a 1985 interview. 
I used to make dolls out of hollyhocks and all types of flowers, pipe cleaner dolls and things like that. Greer would later recount an early desire to be a girl. Her femininity was a source of vexation to her parents, according to her widow, Paul Monroe, and this reaction by her parents may have been the inspiration for crafting dolls as a way to express femininity without dressing in girls' clothing. However, one story repeated online with some frequency about Greer is that her Christian family preferred the idea of a transsexual daughter to that of a gay son, and that they were the ones to bring up the idea of a sex change operation to her. Whether this is true or not, I can't say, but regardless, it seems that by the age of 17, Greer was going through the process of a medical transition. She was unusually young for the time period, and even with supportive parents was rejected by two doctors before they finally found one willing to help. Stories differ as to when she had surgery, either at 17, or 20, or even 21. It's said that her father's church helped pay for the surgery, though she later told ID Magazine that insurance paid for everything. This would have been sometime between 1975 and 1978. Greer went to the Art Institute of Chicago and later transferred to the Pratt Institute. Applying her art school education to her doll-making practice resulted in her first major work, Sissy. The larger-than-life doll is described by Greer's friend, Leah Gangitano, as Greer's most autobiographical work. The cloth doll is intersex in giving birth. She worked on this piece for her entire adult life beginning in 1979, like Greer, it changed over time. She even gave it a sex change. The doll, according to Nan Golden, was created after Greer had a dream of giving birth to herself. Like many of her later works, Sissy is both beautiful and grotesque. It's thought to reference the complications she experienced following surgery. Not long after beginning work on Sissy, in the late 1970s, Greer moved to the East Village in New York, where she quickly embedded herself within the bustling downtown art scene. the roommate of Nan Golden, and the two remained close friends for years to come. Greer would, alongside Cookie Mueller, become one of Golden's primary muses. Golden's portraits of Greer helped cement both artists' legacies to this day. One of the first big breaks Greer got was being included in MoMA PS1's New York slash New Wave exhibit curated by Diego Cortez in 1981. Nan Golden has referenced this as a defining show of the downtown movement. Her work, according to curator Cortez, blurred the line between folk art and fine art. Golden writes, quote, Beautiful, glamorous, fragile, with a disarming sweetness and an ironic wit, Greer quickly became one of the luminaries of the East Village art world, amused to other artists like David Wynarowitz and Peter Hujar, and a seminal artistic force in her own right. 
The complications following her surgery, however, led Greer into a deep depressive spiral, and only a year out after the operation, she attempted suicide while living in Golden's Loft in the Bowery, according to her friend Julia Morton. Shortly after that, she moved out on her own. Greer became a regular at the Mud Club, a drug-filled wonderland where trans people rub shoulders with artists like Andy Warhol and celebrities looking to harness some essence of true underground glamour. Her work also showed at Civilian Warfare, a gallery in the East Village. Her second solo show drew such a packed crowd that it was acclaimed as a major success within the scene. The dolls in the show were based on sideshow freaks, often depicted eating disorders, and included Sissy, the hermaphrodite, giving birth. Julia Morton recalls that Greer had a particularly difficult time dating during this period. Cis straight men pursued her waifish beauty, but when she inevitably disclosed her trans status, she was often met with rejection and even physical violence. Sometime in late 1982 or 1983, the photographer Peter Hujar, most famous today for his stunning photos of trans actress Candy Darling on her deathbed, who herself would later be turned into several dolls by Langton, introduced Greer to Paul Monroe. Monroe was bisexual and, like Greer, according to his business partner Julia Morton, had an eating disorder. With Morton, Paul Monroe co-owned Einstein's, a boutique on 7th Street. Greer and Paul fell in love and moved in together very shortly thereafter. Greer began working in a shop and her dolls soon became an iconic part of Einstein's window displays. Though curators were keen to put Greer's work in their shows, due perhaps to their seedy aura of underground downtown glamour, collectors were less interested. Monroe says it was Greer's gallerist who came up with the idea of photographing the dolls, thus creating a more easily commercial product for collectors to purchase and helping Greer live off her art. In 1987, Greer and Paul married. Nan Golden took their iconic wedding photos, which she later included in her famous Ballad of Sexual Dependency slideshow. Greer has a cigarette in one hand and Paul's hair is acid green. The two of them look truly joyous and incredibly 80s. But though she was in love and her art career was well on its way to becoming established, the mid-1980s had ground on and with it came the plague. All around Greer and Paul, people were dying. AIDS ripped through the downtown scene with ever-increasing ferocity while everyone's drug use spiraled, causing an increase in overdoses. Greer and Paul both became consumed by their drug use. Morton claims that their mutual addictions caused the breakdown of their once idyllic relationship. Greer's work began to suffer too. The grotesquerie of her images caused many to look away. Hilton Alls writes, quote, Sometimes, looking at Greer's dolls in that window at Einstein's, I had to turn away. They bordered on a kind of drag that I don't particularly feel comfortable with. Woman as an object of ridicule rather than celebration. And when I think of that, I wonder what Greer was thinking, largely about herself, about her past as the daughter of a pastor. The mass devastation of AIDS decimated Greer's community of artists, causing the shutdown of civilian warfare, her gallery. 
Now she sold her dolls solely out of Einstein's, but this too would stop when Greer and Paul finally broke up. Julia Morton claims that Greer and Paul finalized their divorce in 1993, but Paul says they were never formally divorced. He even goes further, alleging that Greer's mother forged his signature on divorce documents years later. Without gallery representation to sell her work and broken off from her husband, with little community left and a growing dependency on drugs, Greer moved back to Chicago. She was trying to get her life together. In 12-step programs, this is called pulling a geographic, the idea that moving to a new place, you'll be able to leave your old problems behind. Her parents were living in Chicago at the time, and she may have moved in with them or simply wanted to be closer to them. Her health was frail, and photos of her from this time are difficult to look at in relation to those taken less than 10 years before. Addiction and a lifelong struggle with an eating disorder seem to have ravaged her. In 1995, interest in her work returned when she was selected for the Whitney Biennial and the Venice Biennial at the same time. She may well have been the first openly trans artist to exhibit work at these two major art events. Here's a short clip of her at the Whitney Biennial discussing her work. This is, are you filming her? Oh, this is Candy Darling. And then on the back of it, it's got that song that the Velvet Underground wrote about her. It's, um, it's Candy Says. Uh, well, that's just like the song about it's, uh, how she hates her body and all that. And then she died, you know, in uh, 74. And then in here, you know, the Candy Darling Diaries, did you read those? Where, like, all she talks about is her makeup and stuff. And then in the song, she talks about, in the song, they talk about um, she's going to watch the bluebirds fly over her shoulder, maybe when I'm older. But, of course, she never, she's never going to be older because she dies. Uh, she was one of the hardest ones to do. This is really hard to get a likeness. Um, the, the guard wants you to um, not touch the art. He says you... Okay. It's mine. Will you, will you do me a favor? Stand next to this one and just explain to the audience, just in case they might not know who Candy Darling was. Just tell who she was. Uh, Candy Darling was a um, big star in Warhol's movies. She's in Women Revolt. Um, God, what else? Oh, she was in Trash, she was in um, Ride and Brand X, and then these German movies, too. And she met a tragic right? She got some kind of lymphoma and died from cancer. Uh, sometimes they say she's 26, and sometimes she's 30. <laughs> so I don't know. All right, let's go to this. This is um, Blue Babe, and she's just, you know, like a circus fat lady. No, I just, I, I collect pictures of fat people and skinny people. Yeah, I have a whole, like, file camera. This renewed interest in her work led to the curators of Pittsburgh-based gallery, The Mattress Factory, to visit her studio in Chicago. 
Morton writes, quote, they were both amazed and appalled by what they found. Her apartment was a creative disaster site. Dolls strewn everywhere, the walls covered in photos and shrines, Greer's tiny apartment inspired the curators. They commissioned her to entirely recreate it within the gallery. Greer spent the next few months meticulously recreating her apartment in the mattress factory for an installation called It's About Me, Not You. Here's a short clip of her discussing the work when it opened in 1996. Everyone says they look like me, but they're not, they're not all me. Mm -hmm. But um, they're just my ideas of I think what I think is pretty. Yeah. Even though most people think they're really ugly. I love fashion. I've always liked fashion. My dolls are like fashion dolls, I think, sort of. At least to me, they are. If I'm walking on the street or something, I feel like I'm modeling. I'm always modeling my clothes. I became anorexic when I was about 19. And then, um, I think that was probably from it, uh, you know, wanting to be glamorous and all that. Psychiatrists wanted me to decide if I wanted to be a boy or be a girl. And I decided to be a girl just because I looked like a girl anyway. Because I, and I liked the whole idea of being a model and being glamorous and didn't seem like you could be like that if you were a boy. I mean, I don't really feel like either sex. But I think I look more like a girl than a boy, so... While preparing the installation in Pittsburgh, at least one source claims that Greer was raped. The show opened with some controversy due to the full nude image of her used on the promotional poster. A few weeks later, she returned to Chicago and overdosed. Some sources claim that she overdosed on heroin. However, Paul Monroe told Artsy that she was on a cocktail of painkillers due to ongoing complications from her surgery, which he claims she never wanted in the first place. According to Paul, the family then boxed up her things and threw them into a dumpster near their house. One of her friends evidently found out about this and rushed to the dumpster with some 30 other people to retrieve as much of her things as they could. Paul now maintains the Greer Langton Archive Museum, holding on to many of her dolls alongside her papers, photos, and ephemera. In 2009, the Mattress Factory added, It's about me, not you, to its permanent collection. Throughout the 2010s, Paul Monroe has been on a mission to preserve the legacy of Greer Langton through the Greer Langton Archives Museum. This has resulted in a number of new exhibitions of her work, which I say with some bitterness I have not been able to actually get to yet, including showings of her work at LACMA in Los Angeles and Participant Inc. in New York. Paul, who has become close friends with actress Lena Dunham, has been working on a documentary project about Greer's life, which I can't wait to see. As well, he runs an Instagram account for the Greer Langton Archives Museum, which has introduced her work to a brand new generation of trans and queer artists around the world. Greer Langton was a shining star of an art scene decimated by the AIDS and overdose epidemics of the 1980s. Only 38 when she died, Greer's work reflects the glamour and pain of her life on the edge as a young transsexual decades ahead of her time. She will, for me, always be a source of inspiration, both through her own work and through the haunting portraits of her by her friends Nan Golden, Peter Hujar, and David Wynarowitz. Though sometimes difficult to look at, art critic Hilton Alls reminds us, 
No artist is down on her luck when she has her art. It's what Greer fed on, even when she ate no other food at all. Her dolls were starved for our attention. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter, or there is also an OFTV uh, Twitter at OFTV Podcast. If you'd like to hear some special bonus mini episodes, check out patreon.com slash OFTV where those are available as well. Sorry to keep plugging things, but please follow um, at framing.agnes on Instagram and framing underscore Agnes on Twitter to keep up with our new film project, uh, which is being directed by Chase Joint. It's really, really exciting, and I think you're all going to go wild. So please join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.